Thanks for pressing play. How prepared are military general surgeons and orthopedic surgeons to deal competently with upper extremity vascular injuries encountered on the battlefield? How do courses such as Asset Plus and the Combat Orthopedic Trauma Surgical Course help assess readiness and train critical expeditionary procedural skills to deploying surgeons? Stick around and find out. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Military Medicine and War Docs present a Ready Medical Force Special Collection. We speak with the authors of recently accepted journal articles addressing the key readiness issues in operational medicine and discuss the importance of their findings. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Pamela Andreata, the Director of Surgical Skills Assessment at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences and the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. She discusses her military medicine paper, Upper Extremity Vascular Exposure for Trauma, Comparative Outcomes for General Surgeons and Orthopedic Surgeons. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Dr. Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome Dr. Pamela Andreata to Wardocs. Pamela, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So today we're going to talk about your work in military medicine, about upper extremity vascular exposures for trauma, really looking at outcomes between general surgeons and orthopedic surgeons. Tell me a little bit about what prompted you to write this article and what concerns or questions were you trying to address? The first is that increasingly in modern warfare, but also in domestic environments, we're seeing blast-related injuries that cause significant injury to the extremities. Body armor and what have you has reduced the type of injuries to the torso, but extremity injuries are still pretty prevalent and it's very easy to lose your life from an extremity injury by bleeding out. So we want to make sure that our surgeons are trained to recognize and control peripheral vascular bleeds to save the life, but also if possible, to save the limb and retain function of that limb by not just ligating, but perhaps evaluating the injuries and shunting to see if we can save those as well. In these small teams, especially role two and below, we don't always have vascular surgeons. In fact, we rarely have vascular surgeons. The surgeons who are deployed in those contexts tend to be general surgeons and orthopedic surgeons and relatively young in their careers. So we wanted to make sure that they were able to manage the type of injuries that they would see in those combat environments at those roles. Looking back at the recent high op-tempo time in OIF and OEF, what were the likelihood that somebody at a role two would encounter extremity vascular injury that would require some kind of intervention? Yeah, so based on the joint trauma system, what we saw is about 35% of vascular injuries, peripheral vascular injuries, were upper extremity injuries. Kind of mentioned it before, but what are the goals at that role two? They're not going to be doing definitive therapy, right? Correct. Goals there are for mangled extremity, you got to tease out what's bleeding, what you can control. So any type of, and if it's an amputation, same, whether it's a full or partial amputation, you need to be controlling those 
bleeding vessels. So the idea is examine the patient, identify the primary bleeders, gain proximal control, and whether that's through ligation or, if possible, a temporary shunt. And that's going to depend on the injury pattern, right? So for some bleeds, they might be squirrely and just like a minor hole in the vessel that you could easily put a shunt in and, and save the limb. If it's a full blast injury, you may not be able to do that. So the idea there is just to gain control of the hemorrhage and restore blood flow is possible on a temporary level before evacuation to the excess line of care. In our modern day training, general surgeons in their residencies and general practice are getting less and less exposure to vascular injuries and orthopedics the same way. What kind of pre-deployment training, because you said that the vascular surgeons aren't the ones at the role two that are seeing these initially. What kind of training are we currently providing for these orthopedic and general surgeons? That is such an important point. Because oftentimes we assume that when a surgeon completes their residency, they, of course, can do everything possible in that particular program. But that is somewhat restrained by what's available, what opportunities are available to them during training. Most of our general surgery and orthopedic surgery residents going through programs, they also have vascular surgery programs. So those types of procedures go to the vascular surgeons and my colleague and good friend, Mark Boyer, emphasizes is that during these residency training programs, less than one to 3% can actually gain access to vascular procedures. And yet we're expecting them to go and maintain, well, not even maintain, acquire and perform these abilities in austere environments with very little training. So what the clinical readiness program, so I'm going to speak probably quite a bit about the clinical readiness program because I'm extremely proud of the military for supporting this program. It, it's really recognizing the need for physicians, surgeons, nurses, other health professionals to maintain and in some cases acquire those abilities they need for service in expeditionary environments. So as part of the clinical readiness program, this is a DOD-wide, MHS-wide program, deployment requires that surgeons and orthopedic surgeons complete two courses. Surgeons is ASSET Plus. It's Advanced Surgical Exposures for Trauma. That course is a two-day course. It's one-to-one mentorship between an expert in these exposures, whether that's a trauma surgeon or a vascular surgeon or a very, very experienced expert military surgeon who has performed these procedures multiple times. And it's a really, truly incredible opportunity for training. And within the course, we assess. And the reason we assess is because without information, we're doing our surgeons a disservice because they don't know what they don't know. If we assess them, we can identify those areas where they need to up their game, so to speak. And then more importantly, inform them that they in fact have met that standard and that they can be confident that they can do these procedures in those environments that are quite challenging. The correlate for orthopedic surgeons is the Combat Orthopedic Trauma Surgical Skills Course. This includes all of the peripheral vascular exposures in addition to, in both courses, address other elements of trauma training as well. 
Are they still doing the emergency war surgery course? So these two courses are replacements for that course as the requirement. The EWSC is largely, I would say, passive because you can be an active learner when you're engaged in PowerPoint lectures, but it's predominantly didactically based and it does not really require hands-on performance of these essential, critical, life-saving procedures. So we reconceptualized the course to be more pragmatic and practical for the surgeons going through it. And I will tell you, they love it. People, not only the instructors, but the participants, we get such tremendously positive feedback from everybody. And more importantly, we are able to actually show where we have performance gaps and that we are able to close those performance gaps. So this gives command, operational command, the information they need to appropriately plan their missions. And that's really an important closing of the loop across the board that we know, we know people are ready. It's not a guess, it's not a hope, it's not optimism. We actually have concrete data that show that they are in fact ready. In these courses, you use perfused cadavers, and that is an attempt to make it as realistic as possible and have the anatomy that they're going to expect. How close is it to the real thing in the feedback that you get from the trainees? So it's impossible to recreate that applied environment. We all recognize that. There are elements of procedural performance in those contexts that we really can't replicate. However, we have to do our best. And to the extent that the anatomy, uh, we're going to have inconsistencies in anatomy with cadavers in the same way we do with patients. Many of our patients, of course, are young, robust males and females. And oftentimes our cadavers are not young and robust. So there's going to be some variation there, especially in vasculature. But typically those older Patients who have died from other causes have more challenging vascular. So if they can operate in that context, it's likely going to transfer over. The perfusion is a mixed bag. So on the one hand, it's great for the vascular flow and repair and shunting and being able to identify the Over the course of a day, and these are day-long courses, over the course of the day, there is no excretion from those cadavers. So pumping in a lot of fluid and they can get a little boggy towards the end of the day. So we tried to make sure that we have these vascular control procedures in the earlier part of the day and then we restrain the flow. So in your study, you noticed a rather large discrepancy in pre-training scores between the orthopedic surgeons and general surgeons. Why do you think that's the case? So orthopedic surgeons, training in most academic medical centers, there's going to be a vascular team to manage the vascular injuries. So they're not going to be doing much of that during training. General surgeons also in a trauma context will likely have vascular surgeons there. However, during their routine practice, they have to be more mindful of control of bleeding vessels. That's part of surgery. So if you're in the abdomen or you're in the chest or in the pelvis, you're going to have to be very mindful of how you can avoid vessel bleeds. But in fact, if you do 
in some procedures, you have to actually damage the vessels or remove the vessels in order to proceed. So I think they have a little more experience in controlling vascular bleeds than orthopedic surgeons do. Was there any other interesting findings that you didn't report that you found in the pre-training scores? Had they been deployed? Did that make a difference? Had the the number of years post-residency type of practice, anything else that you could tease out in that pre-training score? Yeah, these are really important confounding, you know, and research you would say confounding variables. But what we would say in the applied room is they're contributing variables because we want to leverage what each person brings to the table. So if they are more experienced or have more deployment expertise, then we would absolutely want to leverage that in their training. What we found in our sample was it was more of a homogenous sample of relatively junior personnel with very little deployment experience. This is not surprising, right? We, we tend in the military health system, we tend toward the younger end of the spectrum. And then, of course, we have our experts that bring into the equation whatever we possibly can. And they're wonderful. And we're so grateful for them to share their expertise. So we did not see any variation in the sample on those really essential contributing factors. Where we did see some variation was on the volume of their operative practice in garrison or through military civilian partnership organizations. So their routine surgical practice, if they operated more, they tended to perform a little bit better, especially in the acquisition. So even though coming in on the first day, not super familiar with the procedural steps, is a large part of it. Good, strong surgeons, good hands, no problems there. But if you don't do the procedures, and in some cases, maybe not familiar with the anatomy, you're going to have some some challenges. But if you operate more, you're going to have your muscle memory is going to be intact, right? And your procedural thinking is going to be more robust than if you're not operating very much. And you don't have to operate Even if you're off for a month, you can start to see some degradation in those performance factors. So unfortunately, we did not have complete data for all the surgeons in the sample. So I couldn't do a full analysis of that. But what I did look at was tending in that direction. So you did find that that both groups, the general surgeons and orthopedic surgeons, improved dramatically, especially the orthopedic surgeons, because they started with lower scores. The one thing that was concerning to me was that the orthopedic surgeon group did not meet your benchmark of a a score of 90 out of 100. And so how did you come up with that benchmark? And and what does that mean practically if if they're not getting up to that benchmark? Benchmarks are unfamiliar, I would say, in the surgical community, but they're used and many, many other high acuity performance areas. And that's what I do. I study human performance in high stress, high acuity environments. And so the benchmarks were derived from both logic and psychometric considerations of the actual assessment measurement. So the logic is what we want is for the surgeon to be able to perform independently and accurately. It's really that simple. So independently perform, accurately perform each 
component of that procedure on their own. That's the standard. They might not be super fast. They have to be fast enough that the patient doesn't bleed out, but they don't have to be, we're not looking at that. We're not looking at efficiency even. We're looking at competency. Is it accurate? Is it independent? How that scores in the background, essentially, I implement a normal curve equivalent in the scoring. And what that means in lay terms is we have a normal distribution of expert vascular surgeons. We measure out how they perform. We calculate that normal curves and we use those normal curve equivalents for the spectrum of performance. So it's rooted in measurement science and it's rooted in clinical medicine, which is accurate and independent. And so we marry the two so that we are sure that we have very valid and very reliable measurements to the benchmark. Now, the practical implications of that are the part that's really interesting. First, I want to say that our orthopedic surgeons who went through this study and the program are extraordinary surgeons. And the fact that they are able to come into an area that they've never done and achieve such enormous performance gains speaks to the quality of our surgeons. So we have amazing surgeons in the military health system, and I think we can all be proud of that. The practical ends of that, however, is if they are not able to independently and accurately perform all elements of the procedures, that's going to be a challenge for them if they need to perform those procedures. That's going to depend on the extent of the vascular injury. It's going to depend on what assistance they have from another surgical colleague that might be present, or if they have the opportunity, these are these are short time frames because people are bleeding, whether they can get accounts over the radio or other communication. The other, the more important element there is that they need to know that they have a performance gap. And if they know they have a performance gap, and this is what we hear, I hear this almost every time we put a group of people through these courses. They know what they can do well and they know where their gaps are. So then they go back. Surgeons are competitive people. They do not want to be underperforming. So they go back and they figure it out and they work on it so that they close those gaps themselves. So even if they don't make it within the two-day period, I'm pretty confident that they're going to be able to perform well in most situations. No one would argue that being proficient and competent at doing a procedure is important. One of the things that is harder to train is that judgment of when you need to ligate something, when do you do an amputation, when do you put a shunt? How do you evaluate that in this training scenario? We do that as part of the clinical readiness program as a whole. So in these courses, we're looking at the procedural skills. Within that, there are queries that are made by the faculty mentor. Keep in mind, these are one-to-one faculty mentors. So this is old school apprentice style training and assessment. This is the roots of surgery and the apprenticeship model. In that process, those faculty are encouraged to discuss their own histories, their own cases, ask questions about what would you do in this situation or in that situation. So that's an integral part of that procedural course. In addition, we assess 
knowledge and judgment using case-based multiple choice questions. So we do that in two elements. One at the beginning and end of these hands-on courses, but also in aggregate, we have knowledge exams and these are 200 item exams. So 200 questions, all of which are case-based, all of which are rooted in combat casualty care scenarios. So you have to make decisions about what's the best approach. In some cases, what particular procedures would you consider in order? And those types of things. So they look at very high level reasoning and judgment, and in many cases, synthesis of all of the factors. So not just the procedure, but the actual clinical environment within the operational environment. And they have to take all those into consideration, including evacuation. In your paper, you mentioned one of the limitations was that the pre and post testing interval was just one day. And so how do we know what happens six months later, a year later, three years later, after they've had this training? Do they maintain that skills and knowledge or does that atrophy? Well, that will depend on the level of mastery achieved by the individual. So how long you retain something is very dependent on how well you know it in the first place. So think about riding a bicycle. If you balanced on your bicycle and rolled down the block and then you put it away for three months and then you went out again, you might fall again. But if you master riding a bicycle to the extent that you can ride without even thinking about what you're doing, probably get on a bicycle 30 years later and be able to ride it. Okay, same thing with driving, same thing with those type of gross motor. Anything that's a gross motor kinesthetic, you'll be able to retain that. Where things get challenging are in the areas with fine motor control. So like surgery or let's use another context, playing the violin, playing the piano, golfing, anything where there is nuances in the way you use your body to enact. How well you master that in the first place is going to influence your retention. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not like we can say, yeah, in three months, they're all going to lose it, or in three years, they're all going to lose it. That will depend on the level of mastery at the onset. We are looking at retention, however, because again, going back to our population, does tend to be relatively uniform. They are largely less than five years of clinical practice, so we can look at that and we are looking at that. We don't have enough data at this point that I can assert a generalizable outcome. I see some degradation about three months. We're also seeing some at clean and fine at 24 months. So not sure what's going on there yet. We are collecting data. It's a, an important element. What we've decided to do, because the program requires this, we don't want to over-train people, but we don't want to under-train them either. So we're looking at a three-year window for repetition. I actually think that's probably reasonable given what we know about retention in other, you know, significant goal with high precision requirements to get there. We see retention, again, falls off around three months for those who don't do it very much. And for those who do it a little and enough, you can have up to two years. There's a lot that they can do in the interim that will help maintain those abilities. And so those things are obviously get more experience and and do them on a more regular time period, like going to a military civilian 
high acuity trauma center, things like that. So you mentioned retention of these skills and knowledge as a potential further study. What other studies do you see in the future that are looking at improving a ready medical force, especially in this vascular extremity injury arena? This is an area that I am quite passionate about. You might recall one of the reasons that we wanted to look at this is in our far forward teams, we don't have a ton of people and we certainly don't have vascular surgeons, but this, this crosses into other areas of trauma care with these small teams. You have no room for error. You have no backup, especially these very austere embedded medical teams within the operational teams. So, you know, you're looking three, six, eight people, tops that have to be not only medically ready, but operationally ready. And they need to be able to master their team integration backup abilities in addition to their individual professional role capabilities. We are not providing that very well for them. What we see in some of these teams, especially if they're more accustomed to accompanying these operational unique capabilities, is they will rehearse on their own, not only pre-deployment, but when they get to their locations, they will plan and train and do simulated mass cal events, for example. But even with all that, that is about as tough of a human performance environment as you're going to see. We are asking a lot of those teams and those individuals to do that. And I think there are elements that we could do as a system that would facilitate them not only acquiring, but maintaining those capabilities. These are very expensive people, right? You can't just replace a surgeon. It's decades of expertise and experience. It's very high cost. So these are very expensive and really critical assets for the military. So being able to assist them in maintaining those abilities, it's their responsibilities to maintain them, but it's our responsibility as a system to give them the resources and the opportunities to maintain them. So they have to operate. First and foremost, we have to let our surgeons operate and they're not operating enough. So we need that, number one. Number two, we need to give them the assessment information so they can identify where they have gap areas because they don't want to have gap areas. They want to close those gaps. They're highly, highly motivated. So we need to give them that information. And then third, we need to give them the resources they need to engage during peacetime to maintain those abilities that they gain, whether that's through, you know, maintaining surgical techniques. You can do that with any simulation model. I mean, surgeons have been doing that forever. They used to uh, do cr uh, cross stitch or knit or sew, but you can maintain your surgical techniques on little simulated models. You can maintain your procedural acumen by watching videos of those procedures. But we know via neuroscience is in fact, if you pre-plan by watching a video or by reading about a case and pre-plan that in your brain, you're using the exact same resources you would as if you were actually performing the procedure. So we can provide these resources. And I think to the extent that we do that, we will really reduce that walker dip. 
where we see, you know, a degradation of performance between conflicts. So for our listeners who haven't had the opportunity to read this article yet, what would be your 30-second elevator speech to say, why is it important and why they should pick up the journal and read it? Extremity injuries are serious injuries. I think a lot of times the general public thinks, well, if you're, you don't have a, an injury to your torso or to your brain, you're going to be fine. Not true. You can very easily bleed out with an extremity injury that has a vascular bleed that is not controlled. So whether it is combat casualty care from IEDs or other blast-related weaponry or domestic terrorism, I mean, who doesn't remember the Boston Marathon bombing front page image of the runner who had lost his lower limb and was ashen? That, that shouldn't happen, right? We know how to stop and control those bleeds. We know how to do it. They need to be able to understand what needs to be done and how to do it. And this is as important for military surgeons as it is for civilian surgeons, because these injuries happen. Machinery related, natural disasters. You know, we just, I'm going to date stamp this interview, but we just had a giant tornado go through with people trapped and their, in, their limbs crushed. These are very real injuries that have relevance. And if you can save somebody's life from doing these procedures accurately and independently, why not do it? We've been speaking with Dr. Pamela Andriata on Wardock's podcast. Pamela, thanks again for discussing your interesting paper. And thank you for your service to improving care for our military healthcare system. Oh, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to work with these amazing physicians. I appreciate it. And now, a brief message from the chairman of the War Docs Board of Directors. Hi, I'm Major General Retired Jeff Clark, and I have the privilege to serve as chair of the War Docs Board of Directors. Let me begin by thanking AMSIS for our AMSIS War Docs partnership, Military Medicine, the International Journal of AMSIS, and specifically Dr. Steve Rothwell, the editor of our outstanding journal of military medicine. Readiness a medically ready force and a ready medical force is central to military medicine. And anything that we want to understand and improve in medicine, and in particular military medicine, requires good research. It requires science. I want to thank the authors of these articles that are published in the Journal of Military Medicine for taking on the challenge of doing the research to understand what we know, what we don't know, and where we need to go in improving the care we provide on the battlefield. I hope these authors inspire you to ask and answer the next Ready Medical Force question and publish in the Journal of Military Medicine. Thank you for what you and your family do in service to our nation. Be safe. May God bless. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.